You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Philip Carnes. Thursday the 23rd of October, 1986, 13-year-old Philip Carnes made his way home from his secondary school, Kolashta Aina, for his lunch in the quiet, middle-class area of Rathfarnham. He'd started his first year there, only the month before, and had settled into the routine nicely, though he preferred to spend his lunch hour at home and make the 15-minute walk to and from the local boys' school through his mature residential area. Philip was the second youngest of six, with four older sisters and one younger brother. He was quiet, a bit shy, and well-behaved. His mother Alice Carnes was quite religious, and Philip had begun to share this interest with her, as he'd just made his confirmation. He was a pious young lad. Philip was also an avid angler, and had been out fishing with his father Philip Sr. the weekend before in Wexford and had asked his dad to go out again together the coming weekend too. Philip's mother hadn't noticed anything off with Philip while he was eating his sandwich that she'd prepared for him. She'd stayed at home that day with one of her daughters who had a toothache, and whom she was taking to the dental hospital in Dublin city centre that afternoon. But before leaving the house, Philip had shouted goodbye to his grandmother, who lived with the family most of the time. No one saw him leave, but they heard the door bang closed behind him. It was just a short 15-minute walk between Philip's home in Ballyrone Road and his school. He was to walk by a friend's house and meet him to walk back to school together for their classes, which began at a quarter to two. But Philip never made it back to school. Philip Carnes Sr. was employed by Nestle as a buyer and returned home from work at around 5pm that evening. He didn't think much of the fact that Philip wasn't in when he arrived. In fact, he was pleased with the idea that Philip had stayed out with friends as he tended towards shy. If Philip was beginning to socialise more, his dad thought that this was a good thing. But when Alice Carnes arrived back in from the dentist with their daughter, the worry began. The feeling of being ill at ease had set in and the family began calling around Philip's friends to see if he was at one of their houses. When that turned up no results, the Carnes contacted the school and learned that Philip had not been present for his afternoon classes that day. It was then that the family realised that something was terribly wrong. It was totally out of character for him to go off like that, so they called the Gardee just after 7pm. Gardie became involved in Philip's disappearance quickly. A Garda investigator arrived at the Carnes' house the following morning and the family were reassured that the Garda search for the missing teen would begin immediately, rather than the standard period, at the time, of 48 hours. The weather was terrible and it was so out of character that the Gardie said the search for the missing boy would begin right away. 
But that Friday, there was no sign of Philip. No one had seen him. The friend that Philip was due to meet with on his way back to school had gone on a camping trip that weekend, and some thought that perhaps Philip had gone with the other boy and his scouting group, but they confirmed that Philip had not been there. There was also a theory that Philip might have travelled to go fishing on his own, given that the weekend was long because of the October bank holiday, followed by the midterm break from school. But when his usual spots were checked, there were no reports of a young lad out on his own. No boy matching Philip's description was at any of the likely angling sites. Over the weekend, two prayer vigils were held in the Church of the Holy Spirit in Ballyrone, where family, friends and neighbours prayed for Philip's safe return. His mother Alice Carnes thanked friends and strangers alike for the outpouring of sympathy and support to their family in the search for Philip. She said, quote, I'm so grateful to everyone. Please God, it will all fizzle out and end happily, end quote. Mrs. Carnes went on to ask Philip to get in touch with the family if he was able to, to let them know that he was safe. Mrs. Carnes went on to tell the press, quote, We don't know what to think. We have nothing to go on. He was a boy who always came straight home from school. He was very quiet, and we never had any problems with him. I believe that with all the people who were praying for him, he will be all right. End quote. A description was issued by the Gardie and printed in papers. Philip was about five foot in height with dark brown hair and was last seen wearing his grey school uniform and carrying a khaki-coloured school bag. By the following Tuesday, Gardie were searching the Rathfarnham area looking for any sign of where Philip might be. They combed through the lanes, parks and fields around Philip's home and members of the Garda dog unit scoured three-mile stretches of local rivers. Teams of local volunteers joined in on the searches, along with members of the civil defence. Garda Inspector Pat King made a statement to the press saying, quote, We're treating it as a missing persons case, but Philip's disappearance is totally inconsistent with the boy's character. He was a quiet young boy, very regular in his habits. He had a good relationship with his family, end quote. The Gardaí also confirmed that they had ruled out any connection of this case to obscure religious sects or a local man who was known to have left the area around the time that Philip had failed to return to school. The police further appealed for anyone with information that might be of assistance or who was in the area on the day of the disappearance to come forward, no matter how insignificant or unimportant they thought the information might be. Thirty of Philip's classmates were called back from their midterm break to be interviewed by investigating Gardee. Eighteen detectives spent three hours in Kaloshta Aina speaking to the boys after the six-day search had failed by that point to provide any leads as to Philip's whereabouts. From this, the officers were able to identify further friends and contacts of Philip's, which they hoped might shed more light on what had become of the missing boy. Gardie had called in a number of extra personnel to help with the search and the investigation, and members of the Serious Crime Squad were also brought in. It was hoped that the large number of members working the case would bring it to a speedy resolution. Philip's father, Philip Carnes Sr., told the press that at this stage it was his belief that his son had been abducted, either through trickery or coercion, but Gardie informed the papers that there was no reason to believe that. 
They had come across no evidence of foul play and had no witnesses of an abduction near Philip's home the week before. The same day, Alice Carnes once again appealed for Philip to come home, saying, quote, We hope you'll come home soon. Don't be worried about anything. Come home. We just want you home. End quote. A traffic stop was mounted on the 30th of October, seven days after Philip went missing, on the Ballyrone Road outside both his house and the school. It was hoped that someone passing around the same time the week before might have seen Philip or something suspicious that would provide some sort of lead for the police to follow and give them a break in the case. As Gardy once again studied the statements taken in the course of the investigation and asked locals in the Rathfarnham area to check sheds and outbuildings on their properties, the Carnes family contacted a diviner named John Proud. The docky man said he believed that Philip would be found imminently and went on to say that he might use a helicopter in the search for the missing boy. Mr. Proud told the Carnes family that it was his belief that Philip was still alive out there somewhere. There had been a sighting of a boy in Carrick-on-Shore over the weekend of the 25th and 26th, but this boy had been located by Gardee. He told police he missed his bus to Galway and had slept rough, and was attempting to hitch a lift home when he was located by Gardee. But that was not the only report of a sighting of Philip that the Gardee had received. Between the 29th and 30th of October, Gardee had logged 44 different calls, which were sightings of the missing boy. Inspector Pat King told the press that they would be investigating each one. The Garda Sabakwa unit was called in to search the various bodies of water in the area. There were a number of nearby streams, small rivers and ponds, as well as the Ballyboden Reservoir. Local waste ground areas were also thoroughly searched by the additional guardee who had been drafted in to help with the search. On the evening of the 29th of October, at around 8pm, Philip's bag was found in a laneway near to his home by two passing schoolgirls. They noticed the bag and looked in. When they saw Philip's name on the books inside, they grabbed the bag and ran down the lane to the nearby Rathfarnham Garda station. Gardy collected the bag from the frightened young girls and brought it to be forensically examined. The lane had been searched before, but in the immediate aftermath of the discovery, Gardy were unable to say for sure whether the bag had been planted or simply overlooked during their initial search a few hours before of the cut-through called Washington Lane off the Anne Devlin Road just five minutes from Philip Carnes' house. But police also noted that the lane wasn't on Philip's route to school. It was on the other side of the road, a road Philip had no need to cross. Forensic experts were brought into the area for a further search and door-to-door inquiries were carried out in the housing estate. The lane, used by locals to go to the shop or church, and frequented by Philip on occasion, was sealed off by Gardee. Passing pedestrians were questioned by the investigators to see if any further information could be turned up from the public. After the discovery of the bag, the family said that they were relieved and hopeful. This was at least something. It confirmed to them that Philip had not gone off voluntarily, something that they were sure he wouldn't do. The following day, Gardy also carried out a thorough search of a nearby wooded area, which was about an acre in size. The overgrown spot was located behind a two-storey detached house that had fallen into disrepair and was used most often by teenagers as a spot to drink together. 
On Friday the 31st, milkmen in the Rathfarnham area passed out pictures of Philip. Gardy also confirmed that they now firmly believed that Philip's bag had been planted in the laneway, citing tests carried out on the satchel as having provided the confirming evidence. The Met Office had also confirmed to Gardy that the day the bag was discovered, there had been significant rain showers on and off in the Rathfarnham area, but there was no damp or wetness on the bag when it was found, indicating that the bag had not been left in the lane for very long before it was discovered by the passing girls. Forensics continued to examine the bag and its contents for any clues as to what might have become of Philip. Fibres were found on the bag, but with nothing to compare them to, they were of little use. The canvas material was not suitable to take fingerprints from. At the time, DNA evidence and its collection was not standard in Ireland. The bag was, however, preserved as evidence in the hopes that it might provide some evidence at a later point. The radius of the Garda search was extended in light of the lack of progress in the case and Gardie also began searching local houses too. That Friday evening, a vigil for Philip was held by family and friends once again in the Church of the Holy Spirit after evening mass. Thousands of local people attended. Alice Carnes spoke outside the church after the service, telling the gathered crowd of her growing dismay. She said, quote, Our spirits rose high when the guardie came to tell us that Philip's bag was found. We thought we'd have him back within a couple of hours on Wednesday night, but nothing happened. Now I'm confused by the finding of the bag, but at least it means those reports of sightings around the country don't seem to have been true. That night was Halloween, a much more low-key event here in the 1980s, but kids still went house to house collecting what were called monkey nuts peanuts in their shells, and fruit. It was noted by locals that there were very few young lads out that night. On Sunday the 2nd of November, Gardy asked game hunters and others who were often in the countryside to keep their eyes out for anything that might assist in the search for Philip. They also requested parents in the Rathfarnham area to question their children closely to see if anyone had seen or heard anything of use. When school resumed on Monday the 3rd of November, pupils at Kolosh de Aina attended a special school mass and a further mass was organised by the principal of Philip's school for later that afternoon in the parish church. Every one of the over 500 pupils at the school was also given a Garda questionnaire. The guardie said that they were also investigating rumours that were spreading that Philip may have been the target of other older bullies at his school. There was the implication that the boys had engaged in some sort of, quote, sinister religious ceremony in the fields near to Ballyrone Road, but Gardy told the press that they had not been able to establish that as a fact. Alice Carnes didn't think bullying had been an issue in the school for her son. He had told her that he was enjoying school and was happy there just a few weeks before. The Gardy went on to say that they were convinced that some people knew what had happened to Philip but that they were frightened to come forward. It was also confirmed that Philip didn't have any money on him when he left the house. He had £40 saved in a building society, which had not been touched since his disappearance. That was it. The next day, Gardy staged a reconstruction of Philip's last known movements. It was shown on RTE's main news broadcast that evening in the hopes that it would jog the memories of those who had been in the area that night. 
no one had yet come forward to say that they had seen the young boy since he left his house, which, given the busy time of day, was baffling for police. Gardy also began interviewing students at two nearby schools in the hopes that other students heading back to school might have seen Philip, and Gardy also asked for the person who originally found Philip's school bag before it was placed in the laneway in Rathfarnham to come forward. A spokesperson from the Garda press office said, quote, We feel that this bag may have been dumped by a person who found it because they thought it was too hot to handle. We would be very anxious for that person to come forward and they need not be fearful of the consequences, end quote. Workers from Dublin County Council began lifting manhole covers in the area, searching for further evidence which may have washed away in the rains, while Gardy continued to comb their way through overgrown areas near the Carnes family home. Gardy had calculated that around 140 cars had passed along Philip's route to school the day he disappeared. Most of these people came forward, even if they had little to nothing to add, and nothing of importance seemed to have been gained from this intensive inquiry. However, there was no real evidence that Philip had taken his usual route from his home. There were no sightings of him. The only thing that put him on the route was the bag, which Gardy believed had been placed there well after the disappearance. There were also no concrete leads on who might have placed the bag in the lane or why. On Wednesday morning, the 5th of November, after the broadcast of the reconstruction of Philip's last known movements, Gardy received over a hundred calls about the case of the missing boy. However, Gardy said that those 600 tips were being followed up on, there were no new concrete leads in the case, and they continued to appeal for anyone with information to come forward. Gardy were also looking into a strange answering machine message left for an unidentified factory in Cookstown Industrial Estate, nearly seven kilometres away from the Carnes' home. The tape had a boy's voice on it, and though by the time it was reported by the Irish Independent it was confirmed that the voice was not that of Philip Carnes, Gardy were trying to establish if the phone call had come from a friend of Philip, or if it was a prank call. The Carnes family had also begun to get phone calls. They were occasionally subjected to repeated calls with heavy breathing on the end of the line, but most of the calls were from people offering support. Someone manned the phone in the house 24 hours a day in case there was important information to be passed on. Fourteen days after Philip failed to return to school, Gardy confirmed that they were not scaling back their search efforts. Members from the Technical Bureau, including some from the murder squad, were drafted in to help in the investigation. Large green areas in the south side of the county, Bushy Park in Terranure and Marley Park in Rathfarnham, were thoroughly searched, along with drains and culverts in the area. And Gardy appealed again to householders, farmers and sportsmen and fishermen to search their properties or their immediate environments for anything that might be connected to Philip's disappearance. The following day, Friday the 7th of November, the Gardi were joined in their efforts by residence groups. The Association of Combined Residence Associations, or ACRA, 
handed out leaflets and asked householders to copy them and hand them out to others too. The spokesperson for the group, Tony O'Toole, also said he was willing to act as an intermediary to pass information on to the Gardaí for those who did not want to contact the police directly and had his telephone number published in the papers. On Sunday the 9th of November, Gardaí asked for any members of the public who were willing to meet at 2pm on the Marion Road in Rathfarnham to take part in a widespread search for the missing teen. 300 people arrived and were supervised by Gardaí as they inspected land in the foothills of the Dublin Mountains above Rathfarnham. Various items of clothing were found in the course of this search which were carefully collected and taken away for examination. On the Kilmishogue Road, volunteers discovered what appeared to be a campsite. However, it turned out that the area was used as a play camp by local children. At about 5pm on the windy, rainy evening in the car park next to Kilmishogue Wood, a team of volunteers noticed a Yamaha motorbike parked on the path. Nearby and a little bit further into the woods, they found a pile of personal belongings, a helmet, jacket, shoes, keys and a wristwatch. Gardi were notified and they called in the number plate of the motorbike to establish its owner. Just as they were heading to his address, a jogger came out of the woods. He told the search team that he owned both the bike and the pile of clothes. The man was taken to Rathfarnham Garda station that evening, but he left the station shortly after, and it was reported he was unconnected to the case and had in fact been simply jogging in the mountains. The next week, Accra made over 2,000 missing flyers and sent them to every post office and bank in the country to be distributed in an effort to locate Philip. The organization's spokesperson, Tony O'Toole, called on the army to get involved in the search. On Wednesday the 12th, the Evening Herald reported that Gardi had escalated their search and were investigating religious cults throughout the country, proving that satanic panic did make its way even to Ireland in the 1980s. There was also the suggestion that the Carnes family were deeply religious and that this might have made Philip specifically more vulnerable to fringe beliefs. But the truth was that although the family members went to Mass and attended various devotional meetings, the Carnes weren't overly religious by the standards of 1980s Ireland. Still, Gardaí were receiving reports related to various religious groups and so they were obligated to follow them up. Officers were sent to check temples, churches and shrines, including a premises belonging to the Harry Krishnas. A Garda spokesperson said, quote, The question of Philip Carnes having been taken by a religious cult has been, and still is being, pursued. A nationwide check on religious groups is now underway as part of further inquiries into the case, end quote. But Gardy concluded there was no evidence to suggest Philip had ever been with any of the religious groups they had investigated. Meanwhile, the Carnes family confirmed that they had taken the diviner, Mr. Proud, off the case and asked for him to have no further involvement. They didn't believe that Philip might have gone willingly to a fringe religious group, but his father, Philip Sr., said that there was, quote, every possibility, end quote, that he might have been abducted by one. At the same time, an expert on cults from the Catholic Church warned that some small religious groups were using deceit to lure in Catholic converts to their faith. 
Gardi were also investigating a number of reports from parents that their children had been approached by strange men who tried to then entice them into a car. Some of these incidents had occurred in the recent past and were reported only when Philip went missing. One man was interviewed in relation to the parents' concerns. A Garda spokesperson made a statement saying, quote, We have interviewed one man following a report and found that the hysteria was unfounded, end quote. Gardi assured the public they would continue to investigate such reports, however. On Tuesday, the 18th of November, Gardi continued the house-to-house searches going on in the investigation and said that the operation was not going to be scaled back for the foreseeable future, as they were still hopeful that Philip would be found. Two days later, Alice Carnes spoke on the Gay Burn radio show and said that everyone was racking their brains to come up with some reason for Philip's disappearance, including the notion of being snatched by a religious group. She told the host, quote, If he's still alive, I hope someone is holding him somewhere. I have no idea why anyone would be holding him, end quote. Mrs. Carnes pleaded with whomever was holding Philip to let him go and drop him somewhere safe where he could get help and make his way home. In the run-up to that Christmas, Philip's parents and the Gardaí issued a televised appeal. While on air, the family also thanked the public for their outpouring of support and kindness. It had been 54 days since they'd last seen Philip and they pleaded for someone to come forward and bring their nightmare to an end. Gardaí told the public that they were also now looking for a fairly tall young man who had been seen by the laneway near to where Philip's bag had been found. He was in his late teens or early twenties, and that day was wearing dark clothing. It was also revealed that the only items missing from Philip's school bag were two books on religion that Philip's mother believed had been in there. Philip had had religion and geography classes the afternoon he disappeared. All his other belongings were present and accounted for, including the book for his geography lesson. It was also reiterated that this was still a missing persons case, rather than one of kidnapping or murder. Hundreds of calls came in after this appeal. By Christmas, a thousand statements had been taken in the case, and thousands of questionnaires had been completed. Philip's description had also been sent via Interpol to 138 countries. Meanwhile, Gardi continued their search, but time passed and no new leads were discovered. Four months after Philip disappeared, his school friends still had not given up hope. They, along with members of the scouts and pupils from the local girls' school, held a 12-hour vigil in the parish church in order to show solidarity with the Carnes family. Various sections of the community were asked to attend the church at staggered times throughout the day to keep a good crowd at the vigil. The junior choir sang and a station of the cross was held in the mid-afternoon. The community turned out in force to show their support to the Carnes, with Alice and Philip Sr. being present in the church throughout much of the day. In the beginning of April 1987, a man was questioned in relation to the case by Rathfarnham detectives in Kevin Street Garda Station. The man had fled to the Garda Station that day when a group of 70 people arrived at his flat at Fatima Mansions, after the Sunday World published an article about him alleging that he was a child molester. While there, he was interviewed about a number of matters, 
but Gardie later said that he had no connection to the Philip Carnes' disappearance. A full inquiry into the story in the Sunday World was launched. Tuesday the 1st of September, 1987, Philip's 14th birthday came and went as children returned to school. A special mass was held by the family. And as the year anniversary of Philip's disappearance came around, Gardie stepped up their investigation once more, at various religious groups and certain male individuals. The focus on these so-called cults was prompted by allegations by a young man from Rathfarnham who said he had been abducted by a group and brought to Northern Ireland. A file in relation to that matter was being prepared for the Director of Public Prosecutions at the time. It was also revealed that there were nine vehicles in the Ballyrone Road area between 25 past 1 and 2pm the day that Philip disappeared, which were described as acting suspiciously. A red car was seen parked at a corner with a male driver. Its door was open and a young teenaged male was seen approaching the car. However, Gardie had been able to uncover very little about any of these vehicles or their occupants. Gardie appealed for information from the public about cars in the area that day, saying that any information, no matter how insignificant-seeming, would be of help. Sightings of Philip continued to be called in throughout the country. A number of them had said a boy fitting his description had been seen in the north inner city of Dublin. But none of these sightings were Philip Carnes. Two years later... In the summer of 1989, a young Irish boy arrived at a police station in the UK and told officers there that he was Philip Carnes. Detectives from Talla flew to Scotland to interview the boy, hopeful that this might be Philip. They had been told that this boy had a distinctive mark on his face which was almost identical to the one that Philip had. But when they arrived in the UK, the Gardaí discovered that the boy was in fact a runaway from Ballymun, who simply looked like Philip. Around the same time, the guards were also given a tip by a man from County Louth, who had been briefly involved with the cult, the Moonies. He said that he had attended a conference of the group in London and had spoken with Philip Carnes during the trip there. The boy had confirmed his identity to him, but said that he didn't want to go home to Dublin. According to the Sunday World, the man had written all this in a seven-page letter to the guards and was then interviewed for over seven hours in Mountjoy Station. The paper reported that after this, the man retracted the story he had set out in the letter. On the 15th of October 1989, the Sunday Independent published a story about the Philip Carnes case. It was the paper's assertion that the Gardaí had been deliberately misled by the person who was responsible for Philip's disappearance by not only planting the schoolboy's bag six days after he disappeared, but also by removing the religious textbooks within it. The paper theorised that Philip had been offered a lift to school by a man he knew and that Philip had gone with this man willingly. They believed that the man lived or worked locally and was not known to the Gardaí or known as a sex offender. They also reported that it was likely that this person had been interviewed by Gardie in the course of their investigation by virtue of his proximity to where the crime occurred. 
Geraldine Nyland, who wrote the article, noted that it would be odd for Philip to take the lift, as he didn't like being early and having to hang around waiting for his classes to begin. But the reporter said this might not be the case if Philip had been approached by an authority figure. Philip might have difficulty turning down an offer like this from a person he knew was going his direction anyway. It was also noted that Philip's classmate and friend had left his own home just after Philip would have passed his house, and there was no sign of the missing boy at all ahead on the road. The Carnes spoke to the paper for the piece. Alice Carnes said that she still believed that Philip was alive and well, out there somewhere. She continued, quote, I suppose if he will come back, please God, every day is nearer. So far, there is nothing to prove otherwise, end quote. The Carnes later told the press that the theory that the bag had been planted in order to misguide the Gardie was just that, someone drawing their own conclusions. A senior investigator on the case, Superintendent William McMunn, said, quote, Philip is still reported as a missing boy, and it would be very presumptuous to say that he was dead, end quote. The superintendent also denied reports that a local man had been interviewed in relation to the case in autumn of 1989. The week following the publication of Geraldine Nyland's report on Philip Carnes, the Gardaí confirmed to her that there would be a full re-examination of the files in the case. Superintendent McMunn revealed that they had information that Philip was seen talking to a man on a corner of his road just after he left his home to return to school. The senior Garda went on to say, quote, we would not be prepared to dismiss the results of your inquiry, end quote. Then, the following day, the Evening Herald reported that Gardy had received four telephone calls in the previous month, which were being treated very seriously. The paper reported that the anonymous caller gave specific information about events after Philip had been abducted, and had named two people as possible abductors. Gardy had decided to make the calls public after not hearing back from the man. The police were looking into the calls thoroughly and appealed for the caller to get back in contact with them, to speak in the strictest of confidences. A hoax could not be ruled out, however, they said. A televised appeal for information about the case went out that night too. A number of further calls were received on foot of the publicity in relation to the previous caller, some of which were of strong interest to the investigating team. They appealed for a woman described as a housewife to call them back in relation to the information she had given. The result of these calls was a renewed focus in the Rathfarnham area, and Superintendent Bill McMunn told the media that the police thought there was a greater possibility of so-called local involvement than they had considered before. But as hope faded that the caller would get back in touch, Superintendent McMunn told the Sunday Tribune that if they had to, they would contact the suspect or suspects that had been identified by the person. The other information given in the call had been unverifiable. The superintendent said that the man named by the caller had already been identified as a possible suspect, which made them less wary of making moves to speak to someone on the basis of an anonymous tip. The Sunday World reported in its typically sensationalist way that the man who had called was the gay lover of Philip's abductor, and he had decided to contact police when the two had a falling out. 
Gardie, would not comment on the theory. But the same day, Geraldine Nyland for the Sunday Independent was reporting that Gardie were beginning to doubt the veracity of the calls, and they were instead, quote, keeping an open mind. The notion that the caller had actually been the man responsible was also a theory that had not been ruled out. At the end of November 1989, Gardie returned to an area that had been searched just after Philip's disappearance. The initial call in 1986 had resulted in a search of the Stocking Lane area in Rathfarnham after receiving the tip to look in that area. According to the Sunday World, two residents had noticed a car pulling up to a dump site near to 2am on the 5th of November 1986. Two men had brought a large plastic sack from the car and then set it on fire. The resident reported that the sack had burned for most of the night. After that, the witness had called Gardie, telling the paper in 1989 that they knew it was a long shot of having anything to do with Philip, but it was worth reporting. The investigators had focused on a disused dump in the area, but nothing of note was thought to have been discovered in that initial search. When Gardie returned to the area three years later, the dump itself had been filled in. By late that month, Gardie were appealing for anyone who had seen a young man speaking to a man on the corner of Ballyrone Road and Ballyrone Crescent. The man was thought to be driving a deep red Japanese car with a registration that included the figures ZU and 7. He had curly, greying hair and was clean-shaven. Gardie also revealed that there was a small, select number of suspects in the case and their focus was now contained to the Ballyrone area. A few weeks later, Phillips' aunt wrote an open letter appealing for the anonymous caller from that year to come forward. The family was in agony, made worse by some of the reporting in recent weeks, which was awful and disturbing for them. On the seventh anniversary of Philip's disappearance, Alice Carnes issued another appeal. She spoke directly to whomever had involvement in what had happened to her son, saying, quote, Soften your hearts. The truth will set you free, and the truth will set us free. End quote. Alice went on to say she harbored no ill will for whoever had taken Philip. The family just wanted to know where he was and what had happened. The following year, a photograph of Philip was sent to the United States through Interpol in order to make an age-progressed image of Philip to be distributed. The family still hoped that this might help to locate their missing son. The Carnes said it made sense to them that if Philip was still alive out there somewhere, he was likely not in Ireland. The family had heard stories of missing children being found years later as a result of these aged photos and were hopeful that it might help them to locate Philip. The new picture was shown on RTE's Crimeline program on Monday the 14th of November, 1994. The appeal prompted more calls and letters to the Gardaí with information in the case, and Gardaí once again had to appeal for those who had been in contact with them about Philip's disappearance to make contact again to allow the detectives on the case to investigate the new leads. One of the letters received was from a woman who said she had seen Philip the day he disappeared, playing with a group of boys near the River Dodder. Two older boys were with a smaller one, and they were playing on a bridge that had been damaged during the storm caused by Hurricane Charlie. 
The implication was that Philip was the victim of an accident and had fallen into the swollen river. Gardy began preparations to re-interview Philip's classmates and called on the letter writer to come forward. Alice Carnes appealed for those involved to come forward but said that the tip did not sound like her son. He wouldn't skip school and he was fairly nervous of water. In the end, Gardy identified the two older boys who were supposed to have been with Philip on the bridge over the river at the time of his disappearance. They were interviewed and eliminated from police inquiries. In January of 1995, an anonymous Dublin businessman offered a £20,000 reward for information leading to the apprehension and conviction of whoever was responsible for abducting Philip as he walked to school. The family welcomed the development, saying that they were willing to try anything at this point to bring a conclusion to the case. The man was later named as James Connolly of the Ward, North County, Dublin. He had won a significant sum of money on the lottery programme Winning Streak the year before and had been interested in Philip's case for a long time, so much so that he had spoken to many people involved in the case and had come to the firm belief that Philip had been abducted. Gardy said that they were remaining neutral on the issue of a reward, but that they would follow up on any information provided to them. Mr. Connolly's tip line began to receive calls, and then he began his appeals for callers to get back in contact. James Connolly received one tip which he believed could be the key to solving the case, which he also felt was more likely to be genuine as the caller had made no attempts to claim the reward. All he would say of the information was that Philip's disappearance was linked to what he called an abuse situation, which involved other young people, and that there was a group of people who had some knowledge of what had happened to the missing teenager. In the absence of any firm direction from the Gardee, the press was left with these sorts of speculative stories. The desire to keep Philip's name and face in the paper meant that the family duly spoke to the reporters every time journalists called when they got wind of the latest tip in the case. Unfortunately for Philip's family, this cycle would continue to repeat itself for years to come. In April of 1999, the Sunday World spoke to one of the eyewitnesses who said he'd seen Philip speaking to a man in a car the day he disappeared. The witness, a former builder who lived on the Ballyrone Road, said he'd left his house that day at half twelve to head to work, but had to turn around when he realised his car engine was overheating. When he returned home, he saw a boy running towards a car parked strangely on the corner. The boy fell but quickly got up and made his way to the car where the witness saw him lean into the car through an open door and talk to the driver. The man didn't see Philip get in. The witness thought the sight was unusual and he took down the registration of the car but before he'd heard the news of the missing boy he'd cleaned out his pockets and thrown out the piece of paper by mistake. Gardie had sent him to a number of hypnotherapists in an effort to recall the registration, but it was to no avail. The witness's recollections matched closely with another person who had been driving along the road at that time, and who said they saw Philip speaking to a man in a parked car. 
in August of 2001, just before the 15th anniversary of his disappearance, Philip's picture and details were posted on a new website set up by the Gardaí, missingpersons.ie. Alice Carnes spoke to the press again that October and said she remained hopeful that Philip would someday simply walk through the front door. She also said that she forgave whoever was responsible for his disappearance. Her faith continued to carry her through the ordeal. Then, Jimmy Guerin, writing for the Sunday Independent, revealed that their investigations had pieced together what had happened to Philip. It was their theory that Philip had been the victim of sexual abuse by a trusted person outside his family and had approached another adult to tell them what was going on. The paper alleged that this person was, unknown to Philip, also involved in child sexual abuse and knew the other man. The two then put in place a plan to silence Philip and orchestrated his abduction. Mr. Guerin went on to write that Philip had been overpowered and murdered in the car and his body had then been dumped in a pond on the grounds of a convent, Loretto Abbey in Rathfarnham. The pond had since been filled in and built over. It was never searched during the initial investigation, though other ponds, including some in the Phoenix Park, were searched at the time by Gardee who were looking for Philip. Guerin reported that Philip's father believed this theory, that his son had been abducted and killed by a child predator. Shortly after this, Gardee renewed their appeal for anyone with information on the case to come forward, saying that they believed significant information was being withheld by people who may have felt young and vulnerable at the time of Philip's disappearance. They called for anyone with information, no matter how insignificant, to come forward and assured them that they would be treated with the utmost confidentiality. In February 2003, Gardy received yet another tip phone call. This time it was from a man who said that he and a friend were responsible for kidnapping and killing Philip Carnes. The call was traced to a flat in North Dublin, but the man who had placed the call from the flat had since moved to Northern Ireland. Gardy linked with their colleagues in the PSNI to track him down, but this call had led to nothing. Two months later, Jimmy Guerin was writing again in the Sunday Independent. He had been given access to tapes of interviews given voluntarily by a teacher, Jerry O'Brien, and the principal, Michael Flynn, at Phillips School. Jerry O'Brien had gone on to be the principal of Kalashtaena himself. In his interview, he said he thought it was likely children had found the school bag and had placed it in the lane when they realised what they had happened upon. Mr O'Brien said he believed that Philip may have met someone through a prayer group or church-related activities, and that this person was responsible for his abduction. He said he'd given it a lot of thought, and it was his best guess that someone had manipulated Philip into going with them. Philip would never have gotten into a car with a stranger. His former teacher was sure of that. Once again that year, on the anniversary of Philip's disappearance, Gardy appealed for information on the case. Their focus continued to be on those who were children at the time, but they asked anyone with information to come forward. On the 23rd of October, 2006, Philip Carnes had been missing for 20 years. That weekend, papers carried the usual reports that Gardy still had an open missing persons file on the case, but there had been no solid leads. 
Articles detailed that over the years they received calls around the anniversary, which were always looked into, but they had led nowhere. Gardy and Philip's family again appealed for anyone with information to come forward, saying that someone out there must know what happened to Philip. Alice Carnes told the press, quote, We still have hope. We have to hope. Please God, sooner rather than later, there can be some development. End quote. But on Monday the 23rd itself, it was revealed that Gardy thought it might be possible that the advancement of DNA technology might provide fresh evidence in the case. It might be able to reveal who at last touched Philip's bag. Detective Sergeant Tom Doyle, one of the investigating officers, said, quote, Over the coming years, we hope a profile can be established to identify people who came in contact with the bag, end quote. From this appeal, Gardy revealed that they had had over 20 so-called useful calls, with about a dozen new leads to follow up on. The Evening Herald reported that it was believed most of this information related to people who were thought to have been in the Ballyrone area when Philip's backpack was found. The following year, Crime Stoppers Trust offered a €10,000 reward in the case. After the usual October appeal, a woman contacted the Gardaí at Rathfarnham. She said that a man she had been in a relationship with had told her he knew where Philip Carnes was buried. The man had threatened to kill her if she contacted the Gardaí. Another woman also contacted the Gardaí and named the same man. When contacted for comment about the new tips, Philip Carnes Sr. said he had not been informed by the Gardaí of the new information, nor had he heard the newspaper reports about the calls. But Jerry O'Carroll, a former Garda detective inspector, writing for the Evening Herald, said he was wary of the various developments in relation to Philip's disappearance. He had been involved in the case before his retirement and recalled that there had been all sorts of leads in the past. Some seemed hopeful, like these latest ones, but others had had him searching the Hellfire Club after a tip from a clairvoyant that Philip had been taken there by Satanists. Either way, each time the leads had led to naught. He was also critical of Jimmy Guerin's claims to know the whereabouts of Philip's body, though he did not mention the other colonists by name. In the end, Mr. O'Carroll was right. There were no new developments in the case on the basis of these tips. In May 2009, it was announced that Gardy were preparing to excavate a wooded area on a South County Dublin golf course. There were reports that a section of the earth on the golf course had collapsed in on itself, in the same manner that a grave can subside. It was initially reported that in the 80s, an elderly woman had told police she had seen a freshly dug patch of ground in the area on Grange Golf Club around the time Philip disappeared, which was about a mile and a half from Philip's home. Officers had searched the area at the time but had found no evidence. Other reports said that the woman who contacted Gardy had been in a relationship with a married man, and he had confessed to killing Philip and burying him at the golf course. She had come forward some years later when her relationship ended. On foot of the discovery of the disturbed area of ground, senior officers assessed the information and decided to carry out a search once more. Geophysicists were brought in alongside forensic officers, to detect disturbances under the ground, but the area was badly overgrown by the time the tip came in, making the search effort difficult. 
After three days of careful searching of the area, the examination was called off as nothing had been found. But later that month, the family of the woman who had called in the tip made contact with Gardy again. The search was revived and the area of interest was extended by 50 metres. The overgrown spot was cleared of shrubs and brambles in preparation for ground-penetrating radar. The dig was slowed by heavy rain in the following days, and in the end, nothing of use in the case was found. In 2016, Philip's name became linked with a notorious serial child abuser, Eamon Cook. He had worked as a radio DJ and had gained a national profile through this. In 2003, he went on trial for attempted rape, attempted unlawful carnal knowledge and indecent assault of four girls, but the conviction was quashed. Subsequently, in March 2010, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison for assaulting two young girls at his home in the 1970s. They had been involved with the previous trial. The court was told at sentencing in this case that Cook already had eight previous convictions, including an arson attack on the home of a previous complainant. In early June of 2016, Cook died. Gardy also received a call around the same time from a woman who said that Cook had brought Philip Carnes to his office at Radio Dublin. There, the man had struck the boy with an implement and Philip fell unconscious. The woman, a nine-year-old girl at the time, had fainted then and when she came to, she was in a car. The caller to the Gardie was a former community worker who helped survivors of sexual abuse, Angela Copley. Miss Copley said she had been in contact with one of Eamon Cook's victims and had called her to let her know that Cook had been moved from prison to hospice. He was dying. In the course of that conversation, the woman had told Miss Copley that a Garda had once been in contact with her because someone had said she was the one who had left Philip's bag in the laneway six days after he disappeared. The woman then came forward herself and made a statement to the Gardee outlining that she had seen Philip Carnes at the Radio Dublin studios in Inchicore, which were owned by Cook, when she was a child. She said she had been terrified of Cook. Cook's ex-wife had then told Miss Copley that any time there was a piece on Philip on television, Cook had told her that he had been out looking for the boy when he was missing. Ms. Copley contacted Gardie as soon as she had this information, knowing that Gardie needed to speak with Eamon Cook, but they didn't have much time as he was gravely ill in hospice. Police did manage to interview him after looking into Ms. Copley's information. According to the Irish Times, Cook had verified some of what the Gardie had been told, including that Cook had known Philip and the boy had been in his car, but he would not say if he knew where Philip was. Again, according to the Irish Times, broadcaster and author Gareth O'Callaghan posted on Facebook that he was related to the Carnes family and knew that Philip had become interested in radio and broadcast in the months before he went missing. Mr O'Callaghan said Cook had promised the youngster a visit to the radio studios. In light of the new tips in the case, a Garda spokesperson said, quote, we are cross-referencing DNA profiles with those on items recovered as part of this investigation. At this point in time, these new lines of inquiry have not yet yielded positive results. However, the investigation is very much active and ongoing, end quote. 
Soon after, it was revealed that Gardy were seeking to interview anyone who had worked in Radio Dublin at the time of Philip's disappearance, as well as Cook's friends and associates at the time. Gardy felt that it might be possible to ascertain Cook's whereabouts on the day Philip went missing, because just the day before, Cook and four others had been before the Dublin Circuit Court. Cook and the other men had been in court for sentencing in a case where they were found guilty of a firebomb attack on a house. A man that was seeing Cook's ex-girlfriend lived there at the time and Cook was said to be displeased with the man. The five men were all given suspended sentences for the incident. Retired Detective Inspector Jerry O'Carroll voiced his scepticism on these developments, however. He said, quote, I have serious questions. I don't for one instant feel all the dots have been joined or that we have yet reached a state of conclusivity that Eamon Cook took Philip. Part of this entire story lacks credibility. I can't figure out how this little witness of nine years of age, who was an abused child herself, could have witnessed what went on in the radio studio without someone seeing. Radio Dublin was an extraordinarily busy place. How did Philip materialise from Bally Roan into the studio in Inchy Core? Gardy made a further appeal the week after these reports, saying they believed there were people out there with specific information about the case which might lead to its conclusion. Superintendent Peter Duff continued, quote, From our inquiries, we believe there are people who were young at the time, who may have information in relation to Philip's school bag, who, for whatever reason, did not come forward. With the passage of time, these people may now be in a position to assist. I would ask that these people would now come forward. I can reassure them that they would be treated sensitively and discreetly, with a view to assisting the Carnes family. End quote. A Gardasaurus told Connor Lally, writing for the Irish Times, that it was possible Eamon Cook had forced a number of young children to leave the school bag in the laneway. However, according to the recent RTE Scannell documentary on Philip's disappearance, Gurdy informed the family that the timeline of Philip's disappearance and Cook's known movements around that time did not match up. Nor was there any forensic link between Cook and Philip's school bag. Gareth O'Callaghan continued his commentary on the case in August of 2016. He told Connor Lally that he had been moved and interested by the case of this missing boy at the time of Philip's disappearance, but this interest had grown when he discovered that they were related. O'Callaghan said he had actually worked with Eamon Cook for nine months during the course of an internship at Radio Dublin in 1979. He described the older man as strange, shifty, creepy and dirty, and said Cook had a temper and kept to himself. Yet Mr O'Callaghan said he didn't believe that Cook had tricked Philip into coming back to the radio station with him. One of Cook's daughters had also approached him at one stage and said it hadn't been her father who took Philip. Further, the former psychotherapist and author did not feel that the confirmation of certain details by Cook before his death was credible. The man was said to be suffering from Alzheimer's and was at death's door, and as such, anything he said could not be trusted. Throughout that summer, O'Callaghan had posted a number of Facebook statuses related to the case. It was his belief, based on contact he had with Philip's former schoolmates, that there had been a ring of paedophiles operating at the time, which was linked to Philip's disappearance. O'Callaghan asserted that some of the men in this association were, quote-unquote, well-connected. 
O'Callaghan said, quote, When I realised they were pointing the finger at Eamon Cook, he was a dead paedophile. I said to myself, hang on now, it's too easy to pin the blame on him and just leave it to die. If they are going to pin their hopes on this guy, I think they're letting a lot of guys go free, end quote. While speaking to the Irish Times, O'Callaghan said that he had received information from a man who had worked for someone who he believed was responsible for Philip's death, and said this former boss had buried Philip in the back garden of his house. O'Callaghan had also received information about the same named man from another source, who the broadcaster believed was involved in a child sex abuse ring. Mr O'Callaghan passed all this information on to the guardie, who said that they were following up on all the information received in relation to the case, but said that he didn't believe the guardie were treating the information as seriously as they should have. O'Callaghan asked, quote, why don't they just go and dig the garden, end quote. Later that year, on the 30th anniversary of Philip's disappearance, 500 people marched from Marion Road in Rathfarnham to the little cut-through off Anne Devlin Road where Philip's school bag was found. A petition was signed by a number of people calling on the Gardaí to investigate some of the new leads that had come to light in the case during the year. Gardaí also issued their annual appeal. Philip Carnes Sr. passed away in 2014. Alice Carnes admitted on RTE Radio in 2016 that she had only in the previous year or two come to accept that Philip would not be returning home. She said she wanted to be able to give him a Christian burial and to put an end to the family's ordeal. Despite over 30 years of speculation in the press, to this day no one really knows what happened to Philip Carnes on that Thursday afternoon. In the absence of answers, rumours have abounded and speculation in the press has led Gardaí down further dead ends of cults, paedophile rings and awful accidents. But the Garda investigation is still open and ongoing. Philip's family still appeal for information about what happened to their brother. Something happened to Philip and it's possible that someone out there still knows something. The time to come forward is now. If you have any information about the disappearance of Philip Carnes, contact the Gardaí at 01666 6500 or the Garda confidential phone line at 1800 666 111. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Lisa Doherty, Carl Van Liesout, Shannon Hegedus, Will Lower, Emer Finn, Denise Milgrew, Katie Willey, and Louise Pryor, and to Chris Carey, who upped their pledge. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. Remember, there's a 15% discount with annual subscriptions. Your support is vitally important to keep Mens Rea going. And along with the warm fuzzies of helping out, you do get those ad-free and bonus episodes and nifty merch. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, BetterHelp and Yarn. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So head to the show notes and get yourself some great products and services. 
I know the episode this week is a little bit different with no satisfying ending. This was originally intended to be a bonus episode on Patreon, but as you can see, there is so much information here that I thought it would be better served to put this into the main feed. So let me know, do you want to hear more unsolved cases? If you do or you don't, reach out on social media and I'll take your recommendations on board. Our theme music is, as always, Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thank you.